So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be there in just a minute. Just about everything uh, that we have and deal with in life and go through, we kind of put into two different categories. We can pretty much categorize everything that happens, everything that we view in the category of either good or bad. Now, I know that there's some leeway between those, and there's maybe some things that you would say are neutral, but for the most part, we could pin everything down that happens to us or everything uh, in, in our life down to good or bad. So it was a good day or it was a bad day. Uh, even if it's kind of a ho-hum day, let's be honest, it's kind of a bad day when you think about it. Good day or bad day. Uh, it was a good meal or a bad meal. Um, it was a good experience or a bad experience. We can do that uh, with a lot of different things. This is a good baseball team. This is a bad baseball team. We won't mention names um, of any teams to put in those categories. This is a good football team. This is a good bad football team. This is a good basketball team. It's a bad basketball team. And those of you that want to debate which category North Carolina would go in or Duke would go in can do that. Good or bad. We do that with people too. It's a good person. It's a bad person. This person kind of lines up with everything that I think that's good and that the way that they should be living and the things they should be doing or this is a really, really bad uh, person. We can do that with, with other things that some people do. Good cook or bad cook. I'm betting that when I said good cook, somebody's name or face came to mind. If you're sitting with your spouse, this would be a great time, husbands, to put your arm around them and say, I thought of you, babe. <laughs> and I would also bet that when we say bad cook, you, you think of somebody else. I mean, I grew up in Southern Baptist life and churches all my life, and I have met plenty bad cooks. I've been to many potlucks, and I just want to make sure that I know which, which dish so-and-so made so that I can completely avoid it and stuff. Good cook, bad cook. Good husband, ladies, bad husband. In fact, now would be a good time, ladies. Look at your husband and say, honey, you are the best husband I could have ever imagined. You're so, there's not a lot of you talking. What's going on this morning? Good golfer, bad golfer. Most of us in this room are probably bad golfers. We may say, well, I'm a good golfer, but in reality, you're probably not. Good golfer, bad golfer. Good student, bad student. Some of you were some great students. You worked hard, you made grades, you did well. Some of us, however, weren't so great at being students. We were bad students. We were procrastinators. We didn't always make the grade. We didn't like doing that sort of thing. Uh, good, bad. We categorize a lot of different things in, in, in those. I mean, I even, I even categorize myself. I mean, even, even, I'm going to put myself out here, even preachers can go in the category good preacher, bad preacher. We won't talk about some of the issues that you may have with that, what you would categorize that. But I've got some preachers that I love, and I sometimes measure myself up against them. And I would bet that you do that. If you have an opinion one way or the other, I don't really want to know it. Keep that to yourself. Um, you can write it in your Bible journal or something. He's a bad, bad preacher. Um, you know, what about this? Let's think, think about this category. Good Christian, bad Christian. What does it take to make the good Christian category? What does it take to make the bad Christian category? What would you put in there? Is, is a good Christian a person that goes to church? I mean, we would think that, you know, at a bare minimum, that's something that good Christians ought to do. Like, if 
you ought to go to church. A Christian that doesn't go to church probably isn't a great Christian, a good Christian. You'd think well, a good Christian reads his Bible, a good Christian prays, a good Christian uh, gives of his money, a good Christian serves, a good Christian, I mean, at the bare minimum, is nice to people. Like, you can't really be a good Christian and not be nice to people. That would be a bad Christian because of the meanness that they are to people. What, what makes us good or bad as followers of Christ? Now, here's where I want to go with that this morning. And here's what I, I hope we understand as we look at Philippians chapter 3 this morning. The idea of being a good Christian and subsequently the idea of being a bad Christian is absolutely ridiculous. Good Christian, bad Christian are both oxymorons. And as you search the page of Scripture, you'll not find anywhere ever said or listed or mentioned good Christian, bad Christian. You see, we can categorize ourselves. We can put certain things in categories. We can compare ourselves to other people. We can walk that road of, of, of measuring up to other people. But when it comes to the spiritual realm, when it comes to followers of Jesus Christ, all that goes out the door. And it doesn't compute. Yet in our flesh, from our human perspective, we try to bring that over. We try to baptize that sort of thinking into comparing, categorizing, labeling good, bad when it comes to our walk with Christ. But that's not how it works. In fact, that's absolutely against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's counter to the grace of Jesus. You are either a Christian or you are not. There is not good or bad. You're either saved or lost. You're either living in light or darkness. You are either headed to heaven or you are headed to hell. You are either righteous or unrighteous, redeemed or damned. It's not one or the other. It, I mean, it is one or the other. It is not better at one. It is not higher degrees. It's not third degree. It's not master in this. It's not A plus or B minus or F. There's a tendency we have to measure up to compare, to look at everything through the lens of good or bad, better or worse. But I want you to see that's not the way the Scripture speaks of our standing in Jesus Christ. The idea of being a good Christian and doing certain things to make you better is not gain. It's garbage. It's absolute garbage to look at the grace of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus Christ and think to yourself that you can do it better or you're not doing it good enough. It's a problem not just for our world, it's a problem also for the Apostle Paul. Numerous times throughout his epistles and even 
Peter, when he wrote First and Second Peter, addressed this very issue of robbing grace and bringing back in works. I want you to see Paul address it this morning as we continue to walk through Philippians and as he turns to something very personal for himself and very serious for the church that he's talking to. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Would you stand in honor of God's word this morning? Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Listen to what Paul says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, to, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. And then he says this in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the f- flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason to put confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, hey, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul is dealing with a group of people that he's dealt with before, that he deals with in numerous different times within his epistles. It's a group of people that accepted grace and that went right back to law. They accepted the grace of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of the work of Christ, but then fell back on leaning on the work of man. Paul saw that, Paul fought that numerous times throughout his ministry. We come to passages like Acts chapter 15 where Paul viciously dealt with that in the church. We come to places like Galatians chapter 5 where Paul deals with it with what he calls the Judaizers, which were Jewish Christians that were reverting and falling back and to their Jewish ways and expecting those who were not Jews in order to become good Christians, you got to live out the Jewish ways. You got to do certain things in order to be right, in order to get it right, in order to do it right. And Paul is fighting that. The attitude was that basically to be the best Christian possible, you've got to live out the Jewish life. To be absolutely confident that you're pleasing God, you need to follow these traditions. You have to come down and do these certain things. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the Old Testament laws. You need to observe ceremony rituals like the holidays, fasts, and washing. It's great that you've believed in Jesus. It all starts there. But if you really want to please God, then you have to follow these guidelines that God gave his people. Well, Paul got wind of this happening in the churches that he worked with, and it infuriated him. This very thing that they were saved from, they're reverting back to. He's already addressed it, numerous issues with this church. He talks about being like-minded and humble and harmonious. There was snipping and gossip and 
polarizing things and factions and disunities happening in the church of Philippi. It's happened in churches today. But Paul sees this issue. That this idea of accepting grace and then reverting back to law as way more dangerous and damaging. And so he uses the strongest possible language to deal with it. Notice verse 2, the warnings he gives and the way he addresses people that revert back to lists and laws to measure up. He says this in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Then the first phrase, look out for the dogs, maybe doesn't really compute with us because I think, probably you do, dogs are actually pretty cute. Like we look out for the dogs when we're driving our cars because we don't want to run over a sweet, sweet puppy. They're, they're sweet little animals. I mean, your dog is the most excited person when you walk in the door, more excited than your kids and your spouse and, and anyone else. Your dog is just happy. He doesn't care, care about your character. He doesn't care how nice you were to people at work. He doesn't care about what you say. He's just happy to see you. Dogs are cute. Dogs are cuddly. Dogs are fun. Dogs are better than cats, all right? Dogs are awesome. But that phrase was actually a derogatory phrase, the dogs, the dogs for Jews were considered an unclean animal. Most Jews wouldn't have owned a dog. And they actually spoke of Gentiles, people who weren't Jews, as dogs. Called them dogs. You remember a story where Jesus was dealing with a Gentile woman and uh, he, he called her um, a dog in that because that was the phrase, that was the terminology that Jews addressed other people with that were outside the Jews. So it was a bad word. And Paul flips that word on these people who came from a Jewish background to Jesus and went back and were trying to get others to go back. Watch out for these filthy dogs. Watch out for this trash that's corrupting the church. These evildoers, these are not good people. These are not good guys. These are not good old boys. These people are a problem and a threat to the work of Christ and his church. Look out for them. And then he says this, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, this is a total play on words that the Apostle Paul does here. Circumcision was the main issue. They were basically saying to those who weren't born in as Jews that when you get saved and get baptized, you also need to get circumcised. You all know that a surgery is required for that. Well, Paul calls this ancient ritual, this beautiful practice of the first covenant that God made with Israel, the sign of that covenant, Paul calls it a mutilation of flesh. totally flips this idea that this would be a good thing. These mutilators, these guys who think to do this, you got to be good. It's actually the opposite of good because this idea of mutilating the body was on par with pagan practices forbidden in Leviticus chapter 21 verse 5. Paul uses the absolute strongest language that he could. 
to speak of these Jewish Christians who were reverting back to works. Now, Paul was a Jew, and he respected the Jewish practice and right. Likely, Paul practiced the Jewish rites and ceremonies and different things, but it frustrated him that there were those that were trying to enforce upon Gentile Christians in order to make them good, full Christians. Paul intensely battled with this group of believers as they distracted and misguided Gentile believers. It infuriated him and it grieved him because what it was doing, it was, was adding works to grace. It was adding religion to relationship. It was robbing the heart of the gospel. The Jerusalem council settled this matter that Jesus was fully enough for salvation. And Paul is battling this with the severest words that he can, the harshest words that he can. Watch out for these people. Stay away from these people. Kick this garbage out. You know, we do the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I do the same thing. We get saved and we understand at that moment that it's not by my doing, but I need the grace of God and we receive that grace of God through Jesus Christ. And the work of Jesus is sufficient to save us. I, I would imagine that every person in this room that really understands the gospel would say, hey, Jesus is enough, right? I mean, you can amen that, that's okay to amen. Jesus is enough, right? Yeah, yeah, he is enough, but then we have this tendency to believe that, but kind of walk back on that. Like he's enough, but I also need to do these things. In fact, we take good things, things that are not bad things, things that we're actually taught to do, and we, we make them more significant and more important than they're supposed to be and what they're intended to be. And so we immediately begin to add to the list. So, like, I, I, I am saved, and I am right, and I am holy in Jesus Christ, and I am fully accepted in Jesus Christ. So long as, as I get baptized, and I, as I go to church, and as I go to Sunday school, and as I give, and as I do certain things, I, I got to watch that cussing. I gotta watch my thinking because I wanna be accepted by Christ. I wanna be accepted by God. I wanna be right in his eyes. So I've gotta, I gotta do these things. And so we add to the list, like go to church and go to Sunday school and be nice and cuss less and give money and be Republican. I don't know, we just add to the list. And we make up stuff to throw into this list of things that we have to do to measure up to be seen as good, to be right in God's eye, and maybe one day we'll move far enough up the ladder we could be a teacher or, or a singer or a deacon or, or a pastor. There are ways 
to properly understand all of those things. But we can't miss the fact that at the heart of the gospel is you are not good enough, you will not ever be good enough, and nothing you ever bring to the table will ever get you good enough. That's why we need Jesus. Because he's good enough. And he makes you good enough. And in God's eyes, through the lens of the blood of Jesus Christ, you are accepted and you will never be more accepted and you will never be less accepted. You are in. We leave the law at the cross and we enter by the grace of Jesus Christ. And yet we have a tendency to immediately revert back to the law. And Paul says, don't listen to them, don't talk to them, don't do that yourself. You don't need any of this stuff to gain approval before God. All you need is Jesus Christ. You have his full approval. You don't need this stuff to have confidence before God. Look at the warning. Look at who we are. Sometimes we forget who we are. Sometimes we're measuring ourselves against other people. Sometimes we're measuring ourselves against some, some, some stature that we have in mind of what good and bad is. But look at who we are. Notice what he says in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now Paul has flipped these Judaizers and the circumcision they teach by calling them mutilators of the flesh. In verse 3 he says, we are the circumcision. That's us. He changes the meaning of the word. No longer is this seen as a physical sign or a physical action, but, but it's the consciousness of being new people of God. He speaks in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16 of, of the new Israel of God, calling us that. In Romans chapter 2, verse 28, verse 29, he calls it the circumcision of the heart. God doesn't care what's on the outside. God cares what's in the inside. God doesn't care how good we are on the outside and what sort of things we do on the outside. God cares about the inside, and God wants to mutilate our heart with the grace of Jesus Christ. There's a circumcision that takes place on the heart, and the physical practice now in this new covenant is completely meaningless. It's completely meaningless that a person thinks that they can do something to gain right merit with God. You don't believe me? Well, don't believe me. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 and listen to the Apostle Paul. Maybe you'll believe him. In verse 2, he says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again, every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep, he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Look at who we are. We are the circumcision, inwardly changed and transformed in the heart by Jesus Christ. And he goes on, who worship by the Spirit of God. 
Jesus taught in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well that true worshipers worship in spirit and truth. And when you give your life to Christ, when you believe the truth of Jesus Christ, you receive the spirit of God inside you. Now your worship means something. And your worship is fully and pleasing, acceptable and pleasing to God. I love what Mark said earlier today. That because of the Holy Spirit of God in us, it doesn't matter whether we feel it, it doesn't matter whether we do it right. It doesn't matter whether you can sing. It doesn't matter what you sing with. It doesn't matter what's in your hands. It doesn't matter whether you're reading it out of a book or on a screen. If you have Jesus Christ in your heart and the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you have the ability to touch the ears and heart of God through your praise and worship of him. We are the true, real deal because of the Spirit of God in us. We didn't put that in us. We didn't do that ourselves. We worship by the Spirit of God, and we glory in Christ Jesus. Our boasting, our bragging, the only thing that makes us worthy isn't us. It's Jesus. We boast in the glory of Jesus Christ rather than boasting in our own work. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, far be it from me, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we put no confidence in the flesh. That's who we are. We don't put confidence in this. We don't put confidence in what this can do. We don't put confidence in how good this can be. None of that. No self-acquired merit through religious and moral practices do I put confidence in. We do not in any way consider our standing before God to be improved and certainly not established or secured by our own effort, our own rights, our own rituals, and our own religion. There is not. Let me just say it like an old country. There's not a dadgum thing you can do. Is that okay to say in church? to make God love you more or make God love you less. There's not a thing you can do to change your standing before God when it's secured by the Holy Spirit given to you by Jesus Christ. You are sealed, you are secure, you are where you are and you will not be moved. I don't care how much you backslide, I don't care how much good you do, it's not changing. You are accepted and holy and righteous in God's sight and that is it. John Calvin said this, to place confidence in anything outside of Christ is to have confidence in the flesh and would subvert the gospel and endanger the soul. Let me remind you once again that key, crucial gospel verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no man can boast. That's who we are. Who we are is completely wrapped up in Christ. All our righteousness is found in his righteousness. All our goodness is in his. We live, we breathe, we move by Christ. He is everything for us. And salvation is an inward work that changes everything about who we are, and where we're going, and how we get there. But you say, preacher, isn't it true that the Lord helps those who help themselves? The two people were having an argument 
about grace and works, faith and works. And uh, one person said, well, I, I kind of think of it, this whole going to heaven thing, this whole salvation thing is kind of like a rowboat. And to row a boat proper, you gotta have two oars. And so thank goodness we have the oar of faith and grace. And we have the oar of works. You gotta have both. Because if you just have one, you just go in circles. But if you have both, you can go straight in. To which my brother replied, that's a cute illustration. Too bad nobody's getting to heaven in a boat. Jesus is all we need. He is enough. You and I don't bring anything to the table in this. There is only one good work that takes the sinner to heaven and gives him a standing before God. And that is the finished work of Christ on the cross. That is all that is needed. And that was a really wimpy clap. <laughs> and it's okay. I want you to see one last thing in this. That the, I want you to look at Paul's personal testimony. You see, this is a personal thing for Paul. Like he took this seriously because it was something he battled, something he walked through, something he had to be saved from. Paul was a good guy before. He did some bad things, but in a good name and in a good spirit. And as Paul met the grace of Jesus Christ and began to walk in that grace of Jesus Christ, Paul realized that everything he had believed and everything he had done prior to Jesus to get himself right with God was a loss. Look at the merits that he mentions of his own flesh in verse you know, some people say they got to do stuff to earn. They got merit, they got to gain. They got, to, they got reason to have confidence in the flesh, why they're good at this and why they're better at others. Well, listen, I got more than anybody, he says. I had more confidence than anybody to put my confidence in my flesh. I had more reasons. If anybody thinks he has more reasons, they're wrong. I had more. And so he begins to list off these accolades, these achievements, these, these markers that one would see as these sacraments that one would see as making them right before God. So he says, it all began on the eighth day when I was circumcised. It didn't have anything to do with that. My parents were really good Jews, and they did it right. So I, I met that ritual on time at the right time, and I, 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 I was exactly right because I was born, as he says, of the people of Israel. I, I'm a Jew, tried and true, through and through, of the tribe of Benjamin even. We gave Israel its first king, and I was proud of that. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I, I didn't just be born in it. I wasn't just born in it. I, I lived it. I was one of those Jews that actually took it seriously and that lived it. I wasn't just this, this uh, Christer Jew, Christmas and Easter only. I, I was the real thing, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, there's some people that understand the law. I learned the law. We lived the law. I got the law. But I took it further. I gave my life to the law. I became a Pharisee. I went to school. I went to training so that I could be one of those lofty men that do it right, that ensure their place. And I was a Pharisee. 
and a really good one because I had a ton of zeal about it. I was very serious about it, he goes on and says. How zealous, how excited, how serious. Well, I, I, I persecuted people that taught this goofy, funny thing about one man fulfilling the law for all. I threw him in jail. I saw that some were stoned to death. I ripped mothers away from their children that called themselves Christians. And as righteousness under the law, as all these things that I had to do, this massive lift of things that I had, listen, I dotted every I, I crossed every T, I never missed a Sunday, I never missed an offering, I never missed this opportunity, I did it all. I gained it, I lived it, I did everything I could, but, verse seven, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's not that I'm indifferent to these things. It's not that I dismiss them. It's not that I just don't look at that anymore. No, 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 these things are a horror to me. I consider them a loss. I'm done with him. I'm done with boasting. I'm done with pride. I'm done with any merit counted because of them. I'm done comparing. I'm done looking at others as better or as worse. These acts do not get me closer to heaven, closer to God, more accepted by him. They do not impress him. And I do not and did not need them. I'm throwing them out for the sake of Christ because my salvation, my standing before God, my identity, is completely created and fulfilled by Jesus Christ and his works. Your accolades, your works, my merits, our religion does nothing for us. God does not see us through the lens of what we've done and what we're doing. He sees you through the lens of the all-sufficient blood of Jesus Christ. When he looks upon you, no matter how long you've been a believer, no matter how much you've backslid, if you know Jesus Christ, if you've come to that place of point of turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ, he looks at you through the all-sufficient, eternal, life-giving work of Christ. It was enough, it is enough, and it will always be enough. You see, this system, this merit, this living up to something is worth losing because it says, he's not enough, I need more. You see, it pulls our trust away from the sufficiency of the grace of Jesus and the power of Jesus. It says his grace is not sufficient. More is needed. His power of the cross is not enough. It needs my power and accomplishments too. More is needed to make me right with God. More is needed to get me in. More is needed to get me right. It's worth losing because it says, do, 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 and God will accept me. It warps our understanding of the way that God sees us and our standing before him, our identity in him, and our acceptance by him. We'll think, do, 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 and God will accept me when it says, done, done, done. 
and he accepts you in Christ. And it misses the whole point of obedience. Hear me very carefully and closely. There is the call to holiness and obedience in the Christian life. And if you think that you can just accept Jesus and do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, with whoever you want to do it with, you have misunderstood the grace of Jesus Christ and trampled over the sufficient and incredible sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, if you think that doing makes you better more worthy and closer, you've missed the whole point. You see, this kind of thinking totally kills the motivation and reason behind and the foundation of our life with Christ, to be saved by grace and then to live by law. When we do, in order to be accepted, we misrepresent the gospel and communicate that to be a Christian, you got to do certain things because that's what good Christians do. No, Christians are people saved by his doing, and they have to do nothing to get it. We are saved by grace, and we live by grace. Christians are people who are free from doing to measure up. They love Christ. They know Christ which uniquely motivates them in their freedom to do for God what they are now enabled to do by the Holy Spirit and free to do it. I heard the story about a woman that was married to a man, and he was a rough husband. After they got back from the honeymoon, he handed her a list. And he says, this is what I believe is a good wife. And if you want to be a good wife, I expect you to do these things every day. Well, in fear, this woman did the best she could to keep her husband happy, to keep her husband loving her, and did those things. Every day she would check that list to make sure when things weren't going well, when he was aggravated and frustrated at her, she would go back to that list and, and, and do an inventory about what she missed and what she didn't get right that day. Until one day, he died. And she went several years without a husband and finally came to a place and met a man and he fell in love with her. She fell in love with him. She was very nervous about the whole thing. But they married. This husband, however, had no list. This woman was almost like waiting for the list after the honeymoon was over. But there was no list. Day two, no list. Day three, day, year two, year five, no list. One day, she was cleaning out some stuff and she came across an old journal that she had 
And in that journal, she opened it up and guess what she found? The old list. And of course, it was an emotional moment as she thought back to those memories and, and all of that. But as she looked through the list and she thought of her new husband, who was now no longer her new husband, she realized everything on the list she was doing for her new husband. Listen, everything required to bring you in to a relationship with Jesus, to get God's love, to experience God's love, to save you from your sin, to give you eternity in heaven has been done in Jesus. Amen. There is no list. And so in that freedom, in that grace, with the power of the Holy Spirit, Why would you not want to serve such a sweet Savior? Because Christ is gain. All else is garbage. I wonder how many of us in this room today impress the church because we have attained Christian merit and done what we're supposed to do. We dress the part, talk the part, look the part, do the part. We've done it all, but we are not really saved. I wonder how many people who have done so well at being Christians will one day stand before God To hear, depart from me. I never knew you. I didn't see one thing you did. I didn't hear one prayer you prayed. Because you didn't surrender fully to my son and his work. Because I saw everything he did for you is that you today I wonder how many who are saved who are genuinely truly saved in this room have gone back to measuring themselves by comparing themselves to others whenever they lived up to the list or not how many of us have missed out fully upon what it's really all about not doing for him, but knowing him. How many of us know the rules and have spent our time following the rules and missed out on really knowing him more? Is that you? Sometimes I think it's me.
because Christ is gain. All else is garbage.